We're continuing in our sermon series this morning in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, the origin story of both humanity and of God's redemptive plan. One of the gifts that Genesis gives to us is a a clear and proper and biblical anthropology. Anthropology is the study or the understanding of humanity. And we're off to quite a start in Genesis in our understanding of humanity. We might say it this way. Genesis prevents us from ever falling into the false delusion of the good old days. It keeps us from buying into the lie that there was, there was a time when things were just good and right. And in other words, it gives us a proper perspective by which we can understand humanity and our day and the world in which we find ourselves. And that brings us to one of the most wild and head-scratching portions of Scripture in the Bible. One of those passages that many of us have just enough familiarity with to be a little bit dangerous. The dramatic production that is our text for today can be divided into three distinct acts. And God does something unique in each of these three acts that center around the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to cover two chapters today, namely Genesis 18 and 19. In the first act of this drama, we see three visitors, namely God himself, along with two messengers or angels, who show up and visit with Abraham on their way to the city of Sodom. They're on sort of an investigatory journey to see if the wickedness of Sodom is really as bad as everyone is saying. Of course, this is given to us for our benefit. It's not like God actually had to travel to Sodom to get a closer look. He knew what was going on. But God and these messengers or angels journey towards Sodom, and Abraham knows what is going to be found when they get there. Abraham knows that God is going to destroy these cities and he starts to bargain with God. So that's act one today. Act two of the drama brings us into the story as the two angels show up at the home of Abraham's nephew Lot in Sodom. And we see the painful and horrific destruction of the cities and even Lot's wife. And then in Act 3 of our drama, we see what happens with Lot and his daughters, the only righteous people in Sodom, after they flee from that destruction. And if you're not familiar with the events, it should be no surprise if you've been along for this journey through Genesis that the righteous people in our text will prove that they really aren't all that righteous after all. Some of you were here Last week, and uh, if you felt a little bit uncomfortable uh, during last week's sermon, you better buckle up today because this one is cranking it up a notch. That's sort of the double-edged sword of preaching through a book of the Bible. There are many passages that I would rather be preaching on this morning, but this passage, these couple of chapters, hold some really important things for us to consider and hold some really important good news for us to receive today. I typically begin our time by reading the sermon text that I'm going to be discussing in its entirety. I'm not doing that today because it it is an incredibly long text. 
Just for comparison, Moses takes about the same number of words to explain the events around Sodom and Gomorrah as he does to take us from pre-creation in Genesis 1-1 through the fall of mankind in Genesis 3. So this is an incredibly detailed account of something that for many of us on first reading doesn't have a lot of connection with the overall story of redemption. We'll get there at the end of the sermon. So let's begin with what I've called Act 1. Act 1 is God's visit to Abraham. Our text begins in Genesis chapter 18, verse 1, with these words. It says, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. If you'll notice in your Bible, most of our translations have the word LORD in all caps in verse 1. That's a reminder to us that the Hebrew word was the word Yahweh, the personal name of God. So God himself shows up with Abraham and these two messengers or two angels. And so a couple of things happen when they arrive. Abraham brings water to wash their feet. He has Sarah and the servants prepare a feast. But maybe more importantly, God renews his promise to Abraham and to Sarah that Sarah would give birth to a son. In fact, he says in verse 10 that by this same time next year, you will have a son. And just like her husband last week, Sarah laughs at God. Remember, God told Abraham that the son would be named Isaac, which means laughter. And so now both Abraham and Sarah have laughed at God, this ridiculous promise that Sarah would give birth in her old age. And yet God is persistent and renews his promise. And he asks that incredible question in verse 14 of our text. Listen to this question that God asks. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a question that's worth our time to consider, reflect on, to meditate on. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. God doesn't give Abraham the opportunity to respond. He simply says, I'll come back in a year and you will have a son. But maybe the most important part of Act 1 comes when the three men get up to leave, presumably after the meal is over. The text says that they looked down toward Sodom. And God says in verse 20, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin So grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. Again, we recognize this is for the benefit of Abraham and ultimately for us because, of course, God didn't actually need to get a closer look. And Abraham speaks up, begins to engage God in discussion about his plan seemingly to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. The two angels or or messengers start their journey towards Sodom, and Abraham and God keep talking. I'll pick up the conversation in verse 23 of our text. Abraham asks God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place 
for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike, far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Pretty bold response. The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. And this fascinating dialogue between God and Abraham continues all the way down to 10 people. Verse 32, God says, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. Abraham, in this bold conversation with the Lord, moves from being God's chosen one, through whom all people would be blessed, into the role of a mediator. A mediator between God and sinful mankind. He was pleading on behalf of sinners pleading for God's mercy on behalf of people that he knew and that he loved. Abraham, at this juncture of the story, becomes what we would call a type of Christ. He intercedes on behalf of sinners before our holy God. And this, of course, calls into question how we today view our neighbors. If God showed up at our door and made it clear that He was going to destroy a wicked city? How would we respond? My sense is that many Christians today wouldn't respond like Abraham. Maybe the city that you're closest to, you might. Many Christians today would cheer God's destruction, would say, yeah, that's exactly what needs to happen. Many Christians would find some sick pleasure in the destruction of people that they dislike. These words should cut us to the heart. You see, in verse 27, Abraham knows that he is dust, that he is ashes, that he's nothing, that he is a sinner, that he is mortal. And so he doesn't cheer on the wrath of God. His mouth doesn't water when he thinks about bad people getting what they have coming to them. He jumps in between a holy God and sinful mankind. He pleads with God for mercy. One of those texts that serves as a mirror that calls into question our heart and our motives. Let's move on now to the next act. Act 2. In Act 2, we see God's judgment against wickedness. We'll pick up our reading in Genesis chapter 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom, verse 1, Genesis 19, verse 1. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we'll spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. 
Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. I don't know what a pastor is supposed to say after a text like that. We see the, the depravity of humanity on display, not only in the people of Sodom, but in Lot himself. Not only is Sodom wicked, but that wickedness extends to Lot and his family. Remember, when Abraham and Lot parted ways, Lot chose to settle near Sodom. He made a decision with his eyes, if you remember. And now he's reaping the consequences of that decision. Sodom was wicked. It was prosperous. It was fancy. But it was wicked. And that wickedness had now worked its way even into his own heart. We see this with his sons-in-law who don't believe the warning that he gives. We see that with Lot's own reaction to the evil people pounding at the door when he offers them his two daughters to pacify them. Let's be clear, there is no justification for this act. And scripture doesn't attempt to justify it or even explain it really. A little bit of understanding of ancient Near East hospitality might help us a little bit, might take a little bit of the edge off of the offense of this text. We saw this emphasis in the opening verses of chapter 18. The three people show up at Abraham's house and the text sort of goes out of its way to emphasize Abraham's hospitality. That was certainly a significant part of life in the region. The need, the command to be hospitable. And we see the same thing happen right at the beginning of chapter 19. So it's emphasized again when Lot offers hospitality to these two angels. I think it's important to realize that perhaps the text gives us a little understanding as to the cultural significance of hospitality and of protecting those who had come under your roof. But Lot is seeking to avoid one grievous sin by a different type of grievous sin. Seeking to avoid sin by sin is never wise and never good. And I would submit to you that God doesn't really want us to rationalize the events that take place in Sodom. Particularly the extent of the corruption. God does not want us to understand it. 
to rationalize it. He wants us to feel it. To sense how deeply sin had corrupted the people of Sodom. And so that forces the question, why was God going to destroy Sodom in the first place? What was the root of their wickedness? If we were to ask a hundred Christians at random why God destroyed Sodom, the majority would simply assume that God destroyed Sodom, and it's been the, uh, the narrative by and large because of homosexuality. But that's not exactly the situation we see in Sodom, right? It's a little more complicated than that. The immediate situation that we see in our text today is not as much homosexuality as it is homosexual gang rape, not simply a homosexual relationship. That's an important difference that's worth noting. This is on steroids. There are a number of passages in Scripture that give us deeper insight into what is going on in Sodom. And I want to take you through several of those passages today. If you're a note taker, first I would direct you to write down 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 6, Peter talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. First of all, maybe the most shocking part of Peter's words is he calls twice, he calls Lot righteous in 2 Peter chapter 2. So two different times he refers to Lot as quote-unquote righteous. And that in and of itself, after we just read what we just read, might be pretty shocking. But of course we understand righteousness from God's perspective. Righteousness is not something that you earn, that I earn or accomplish through behavior or morality, but righteousness is something that's gifted, that's given through faith in Christ, through faith in the promise of God. Lot is righteous, according to Peter, not because of his own goodness, but because he believed in the promise of God. But then Peter goes on in verse 7 of 2 Peter chapter 2 to describe what he calls, quote, the sensual conduct of the wicked. And then in verse 8, he describes them as, quote, lawless. We might reword this or describe this as a, a sense of self-abandonment. Giving oneself over. It's an abandonment of the law of God, of all that is right and good. Another passage that gives us some glimpse into what exactly God found so offensive in Sodom is Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3. Listen to these words in Isaiah chapter 3 as Isaiah describes Sodom. Speaking of some other people, he says, They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. In other words, they proudly display their sin and their rebellion against God. They're not ashamed of that of which they should be ashamed. They proclaim their sin. That's helpful as we understand how God viewed Sodom. Another passage that's helpful. You write down Jude verse 7. As you know, there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude verse 7 reflects on the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And listen to how Jude describes it. He says this, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of 
eternal fire. So Jude says there were two things going on specifically in Sodom. He uses the generic word that we translate as sexual immorality. So it's a word that's used all over the place to describe any uh, sexual expression outside of God's design. And then he uses a different phrase, an interesting phrase, just translated as unnatural desire. Literally, we could say it means other flesh. ESV says unnatural desire. NIV says perversion. King James just said strange flesh. The connotation here seems to be that which is twisted to go against nature. Most would agree that these words, unnatural desire, Jude is referring to the sin of homosexual activity. And then one more passage that I think is maybe the most helpful of all is from the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16 Ezekiel says these words about Sodom, starting in verse 49. So Ezekiel 16, verse 49, says quite clearly, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. So what does Ezekiel say was Sodom's sin? She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Ezekiel goes on. They were haughty and they did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. Ezekiel says that there's something bigger behind what we see on the surface at Sodom. There's more to the story. There was something that led to the wickedness that we see. What was that? They were prideful. They were wealthy. They were unconcerned with the hurting and the vulnerable around them. They were self-focused. And and that, Ezekiel says, it's that that led to everything else that we saw. That this is at the root of everything else that we see going on in Sodom. Ezekiel says that the twisted sexual expression was actually downstream. It, It was flowing out of a greater sin, which is the sin of pride, the sin of self-sufficiency and self-worship. Ezekiel drives a stake right into the heart of Sodom and her sin. What was Sodom's sin? Was it just homosexuality? Was it just sexual immorality? No, it was more than that. It was perversion. It was pride. It was love of money. It was hatred of neighbor. It all welled up to find its expression in our text for today. And of course, these are humbling words for all of us. Because we might not engage in the perverted sexual expression that we see in Sodom. But we all certainly engage in the sin that's at the heart of it. And so Ezekiel forces us to do some some wrestling before we get too proud and self-righteous. We must first look at our own pride, that which was at the heart of Sodom's sin. Ezekiel, in essence, drives us here to the cross. He prevents us from just zeroing in on the expression, on the symptom of the greater sin. And he says, no, you have that same sin in your heart, too. You need to go to the cross. We obviously see much of our current nation, our world, in the description of Sodom. 
One of the most difficult questions to deal with is how do we, as Christians, respond to the wickedness that we see around us? How do we respond to a world that, like Sodom, so proudly flaunts its sin? How do we respond to a world that celebrates perversion and wickedness? And the first response should always be the response that Abraham had. To recognize that we are dust. That we are ashes. To look hard into our own hearts and recognize the pride and the self-worship and the intoxication with wealth and the lack of love and concern for the poor and the hurting and the vulnerable and to go to the cross in repentance. That is always our response. If your first response, if your initial reaction to the sin of our world or the sin of others is to call for destruction, you probably haven't rightly considered the sin in your own life. You're probably deceived into thinking that you are righteous by your own works, your own morality. If you see a hunger for God's destruction well up within you and fall down at the cross and confess your own sin. It's one thing for God to say and to declare, I'm going to destroy Sodom because of her wickedness. But we respond like Abraham. by Jumping in between. The godly response to the sin of our world is, is always to respond like Abraham. To plead for those around us. You know, we see this in, in Jesus' parable. Remember one of Jesus' parables, I preached on it a couple years ago. The parable of the unfruitful tree. Luke chapter 13 is where that parable is found. The vineyard owner sees that there's an unfruitful tree in his vineyard. And he says, cut it down. But the vine dresser, the gardener, speaks up and he says, wait a second. Like, give me one more year. He intercedes for the tree. This is the heart of Jesus. Jesus is the vine dresser in the story. The one who stands in the middle. Abraham is the vine dresser in the story. Jumping in between sinful mankind and a holy, righteous, just God. And saying, give me one more year. Like, let me see if I can fertilize it. And I'll, I'll till up around it. Let's see if we can get this thing to bear fruit. Don't destroy it. That's the heart that the New Testament gives us through which we are to see and understand our response to the wickedness around us. We always respond in mercy to those who are lost in sin. Always. We, we always respond pleading for more time to those who are lost in sin. And at the same time, we, we show no mercy to the wicked forces, to the, to the lies that seek to keep people lost. We're merciful to those who are lost, and we show no mercy to those lies and those evil forces that seek to keep people lost. We should always respond in mercy, like Abraham, like Jesus, to our neighbors who are lost in their sin. We plead with God. We get to work for the good of our lost neighbors. That's what redeemed people do. That's what people who have been saved do. They work for redemption, not for destruction of their neighbors to whom they've been called and sent. Of course, there were none righteous in Sodom apart from Lot's family. 
And so God, in his justice and holiness, rightfully pours out his wrath and his judgment against sin. God rains down his wrath against the pride and wickedness and perversion of Sodom that had become so focused on self-gratification and pleasure that it was banging at the doors of Lot's house when there was fresh meat in town. God destroys that wickedness and along with it we see God destroy Lot's wife. Verse 24 of our text tells us the tragic story. It says this, Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back. And she became a pillar of salt, seeking to cling to her old life, to the good and prosperous life that they had made for themselves in Sodom. She turns back against the order of God's messenger, delivered her. Her heart was in Sodom. She can't imagine her life apart from that place. Jesus used her as a word of warning in Luke chapter 17. He says in those powerful words, three words, he says, remember Lot's wife. And then he goes on and says this, whoever seeks to preserve his life or to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. God's wrath against sin was thorough on that day. Not only to those in the city, but to those whose hearts clung on to the wickedness that was found there. Of course, this is not arbitrary destruction. God is the righteous judge of sin, and his judgment against it is is always right. The sin of Sodom was overwhelming. And so if I'm right in saying that this account of Abraham and Lot, and and Sodom, and Gomorrah is like a three-act dramatic production that the curtain drops on act two with devastation. Total ruin as a result of sin. And when the curtain opens, we might be hoping for a little bit of resolution, right? It's not what we get. We thought that the story couldn't get any stranger, Boy, would we be wrong. So we find ourselves at Act 3. Act 3 is about the reality that even righteous people are wicked. Genesis chapter 19, verse 30. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old and there is no man around here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. Let us get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. And then in the verses that follow, that's exactly what they do. They carry out their evil scheme to keep their family line going. They fall into the same trap that their great uncle and aunt Abraham and Sarah had fallen into. 
the trap of unbelief, the decision to take matters into their own hands. You know, many have argued that Lot's daughters actually believe that the whole world had been destroyed, that Lot was literally the last man on earth. And we don't know, we can't see into their hearts, but we know that even the best presentation of these events leave us shocked. Many have pointed out the irony in this third act. While still in Sodom, Lot offered up his daughters, subjected them to unthinkable sexual abuse at the hands of the men of the city. And now the tables turn. And they abuse him. Certainly is irony packed into that. But I want you to think about this as one continuous story that God is writing. A story that God is composing. That culminates in this unspeakable moment in which only three righteous people escape the wrath of Sodom and they find themselves in the midst of one of the most complex and sinful family situations that we could ever dream up. Even the righteous are wicked. It shouldn't be a surprise, right? If you've been following along in Genesis, we've established this pretty firmly. This is another moment, yet another moment, where if we were God, we would have just done away with the whole bunch and started over fresh. But of course, in his mercy and in his goodness, God does the opposite. You see, what I didn't mention is that there is actually an act four. An act that would come generations later. Look at verse 37 of our text. 37 of chapter 19. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. And he is the father of the Moabites of today. This son, born into incredible drama and sin and disaster and heartache, would go on to be the father of a nation that would be named after him, the Moabites. And this is where things get fascinating, because in a dozen or so generations, a young Moabite woman would marry a descendant of Abraham. And her husband would die far too early. And rather than return to the Moabites from where she came, she would stay and she would care for her widowed mother-in-law. And as time went on, this Moabite woman, descended from Lot's daughter, would catch the attention of a rich Israelite man, and they would marry. And that man also had questionable ancestry. His mother was the well-known prostitute Rahab. And so Rahab's son, Boaz, and his new wife, Ruth, the Moabite, would give birth to Obed. And Obed and his wife would have a son named Jesse, and Jesse and his wife would give birth to a son named David. And some 28 generations later, in the city of David, a child would be born with Lot's blood, and Ruth's blood, and Rahab's blood pumping through his veins. It's that same blood that would be shed on the cross for your sin and for mine. It was blood poured out for the prideful, for the homosexual, for the Pharisee, for the 
porn addict, for all who wander, for all who doubt, for all who are prone to self-worship, for all who are lost, for all who have become intoxicated with wealth, for all who don't help the poor and the needy, all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God would be recipients of that blood passed down from Lot and his daughter. You see, God didn't write Lot and his daughters off. No, he, he wrote them in. He wrote them into the story of his redemption of all mankind. That's the kind of thing that God does over and over again. That's the God that we worship and we love and we trust and we cling to. A God who takes the vilest of sinners and weaves them into his beautiful plan of redemption. And here's the wild thing. In just a few minutes, I will read God's word and I will invite you to come forward. And I will say, this is the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Broken and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. That blood that was passed on to him by Lot and his daughter. By the prostitute Rahab and her son Boaz. And that blood was shed for me. It was shed for you. And it's only through that blood that we avoid the fate of Sodom. The blood of Jesus is the only thing that separates you and I from Sodom. The descendant of Lot and his daughter, the descendant of Rahab, the descendant of Boaz, of David, absorbed the full measure of God's wrath against sin in our place. Has declared us righteous by faith. Paul so beautifully proclaimed, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Loving and gracious God, you are holy, strong, and good. And all that you do is good. We confess that we deserve your judgment. We're so grateful for the promise that another has taken it in our place. So give us faith to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.